these two verses especially entitled Saved. I hope that right now most of you can say that one word describes me. If someone came to me and said, what are you? I could legitimately say, saved. That's what I am. I'm saved. That would be a shorter answer to the question, who are you? I am a child of God. But I also hope, and so do my fellow pastors, that those of you who cannot right now say that will be helped of the Lord and especially the Holy Spirit during this brief series, a total of six messages, to experience salvation and be able to honestly say in answer to the question, who am I or what am I? I'm saved. So pray. Pray even during this message, that that will become a reality for you if it isn't at this moment. Now, our goal is really simple. We just want you to be overwhelmed all over again with joy and comfort. Joy and comfort regarding all that God has done for those of us who are saved in eternity past, all that God is doing right now, and all that he will yet do in the future. Some of these things are wonderfully summarized for us in the two verses of our text, verses 29 and 30. Now, it's not as though these two verses are the only two really comforting verses in chapter 8. I would suggest that there are at least 37 other very comforting verses in chapter 8. The whole chapter is filled with comfort and leads to joy for the true believer. Look how it begins in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a way to start a chapter. I've told some of you this before, but I remember when Derek, our brother, was going to have a surgical procedure that had some life-threatening potential in it. I asked him, I said, were you fearful? before you went into the surgery, after the doctor reminded you of these things? And he said, no. I said, why? And I think he said these words, no wrath. The wrath of God no longer hovers over my head. My sins have been forgiven, as we just sang. They've been paid for. My chains fell off. There is no condemnation for Derek Mitten, nor for any of the rest of us who look to Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. That's the way this chapter starts. Are you kidding me? No condemnation? Do you live like there is no future condemnation for you? You should. And so should I. And then think about how it ends. Just going back to verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Going to verse 37. No! In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So here's an assignment for you for this afternoon, perhaps either after your community group or between worship and your evening community group. Read the whole chapter, all 39 verses, privately or in your community group, and make note of everything in that chapter that gives you joy and comfort. And be sure to notice that in the first 27 verses, the focus is upon the Holy Spirit. In fact, he's mentioned 20 times. And then notice the shift to focus upon the Father and the Son in verses 28 through 39. And be overwhelmed with the saving grace of God. Stop and pray several times while you read this eighth chapter. Stop and sing. 
stop and worship. But our privilege this morning is to zero in again on verse 29 and to focus on one of the most precious doctrines in the whole of Scripture, the doctrine of predestination. Now let me go back and give you the big picture for just a moment. Verses 29 and 30 present to us a chain of saving graces, each length of which is initiated, or shall we say created, welded by God alone. This chain has five links. And it has been rightly called, and you've heard this already, I think last Lord's Day, the golden chain of redemption or the golden chain of God's redemptive acts. That's a good way to summarize these two verses. The golden chain of God's redemptive acts. Golden because it's so precious. And there are, as I said, five links in this chain. They take us from eternity to eternity. Eternity past to eternity future. They take us from the foreknowledge of God, which Pastor Jonathan opened up to us last Sunday, to glorification. And that includes then everything in between. In between the first and the last links are the links of predestination, which we will focus upon today, calling and justification. So if you were to visualize a chain, and I actually went to a few places um, yesterday because I couldn't do this in Louisville to see if I could find a, a cheap chain made out of even plastic that was gold, some of, sort of a decorative chain, just to hold up to help you with your imagination. I couldn't find it at Hobby Lobby, and I couldn't find it at Menards, and so I gave up. I just said, no, your imagination is good enough. Picture for, for yourself five links. One, two, three, four, five. The first link is called foreknowledge. The second link today is called predestination. The third link in two weeks after Easter Sunday will be calling. The fourth link will be justification. And the fifth link will be glorification. Those links are all joined together by God. God made all five of those links. They are inseparable. And they are glorious. They are wonderful beyond description. So that's what we're doing. That's the big picture. And today, we're going to be focusing on the second link. Now, I just want to say one more time. The reason why this chain is unbreakable, and that's one of the big takeaways. Please just remember this. Golden chain of God's redemptive acts. Chain made by God. Chain unbreakable. And the reason why the chain is unbreakable, because the chain is made by God. I just said it. I want you to notice the he. We see in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, the question always is when you read the scriptures, like this passage, is who's the he? Well, just go back to verse 28, which again, Pastor Jonathan took a little time to open up for us last week, which gives us that wonderful encouragement. We know that for those who love God, for those who love God... This is only for those who love God, and we love him because he first loved us. Don't take this promise to your heart. Get no comfort from it unless you can honestly say, though your love isn't what it ought to be, I do love God. I love God. And Paul says, for those who love God, and it's as if he still doesn't want us to get away too quickly, he wants us to be very sure that we've that we meet the qualifications for this promise to those who are the called. To those who are the called. And then he says, according to his purpose. But who's the he? Well, we just heard his. Okay, then who's the his? It's clearly God. It says right in verse 28. All things work together. We know that for those who love God, God, 
All things work together. So he's the he. He foreknew. He predestined. He called. He justified. He glorified. Now, maybe those are not past tense experiences in your life. And the only way you will ever know if you are one of those precious souls upon whom God set his eternal affection in his foreknowledge and whom God predestined to salvation is if you are called. And calling isn't what I'm doing now. Please come to Christ. That is a call. But when the Bible uses the word call, it's talking about a powerful work of the Holy Spirit who through the gospel summons sinners and actually enables them to come to his Son, it is an effectual call. There is a general call. There is an effectual call. Paul's talking about an effectual call. That is, it's effective. It achieves its end. And the only way you can know whether or not you are one of those preciously privileged persons is whether or not you give evidence of having been called out of darkness into fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul would simply say, and if you have, you are justified. And if you are justified, says the Apostle Paul in essence, I promise you, I promise you on the authority of God that you will be glorified because there is no breakdown in the chain of God's redemptive acts. So then, we saw last week a little bit of what foreknowledge wasn't and what it is. And all I'm going to say, very briefly, is that Pastor Jonathan helped us to understand that the word foreknew, the concept of foreknowledge in this particular verse, verse 29, is not God merely knowing ahead of time what is going to happen in the future. He does know ahead of time everything that's going to happen in the future. That's not what the usage of this particular word in this particular verse is about. While he foreknows everything, what we must remember is the reason why he foreknows everything is because he's planned everything. Did you hear what I just said? He said something extremely theological. God's foreknowledge is based on his foreordination. Yes, he knows everything that's going to happen. But the reason he knows everything that's going to happen is because he decreed it. He ordained it. And you say, that, Pastor Ted, that's too comprehensive for me. I mean, I mean, not for my mind to understand. I understand the concept. I don't like that kind of a comprehensive foreordination of everything. Well, that may be uncomfortable for you to be thinking about. I think it was for all of us at one time or another. But the issue is, what does God's Word teach? Now, I just want to take a brief excursion because I want to nail this theologically for you. Nail what? The idea that God's foreknowledge is based upon His foreordination. Okay, so quickly turn with me to Isaiah 46. I wish I had a whiteboard behind me because I'd like to draw something out right now, but I can't do that. So uh, draw it out in your own mind, in your own imagination. Isaiah 46, this is a biblical view of God, and passages like these can be multiplied. And in a different context, I would be happy to multiply them for you if you struggle with this. Please notice the second part of verse 9 Isaiah 46, 9, God says, For I am, a, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. The altogether otherness of the true and the living God. Now, what is this God like? This God who is exclusively God. What can he do? Here's what he can do. He can declare the end from the beginning And from ancient times, things not yet done. Now, here's the line, okay, in your imagination. Okay, here's the straight line. This is the beginning, and this is the end of history. 
God has just told us that I can tell you the end of history from the beginning, which means everything in between, if he wanted to. When God gave the gift of prophecy in terms of foretelling actual events, it's very simple for him because he simply shared with the prophet what he knew was going to happen based upon what he decided to do. He can declare the end from the beginning, or if you want to think of it this way, from ancient times way back, he can tell you what's going to happen in the future. Now, how can he do this? Let's go just a little further. It says in the very next phrase of verse 9, um, or is it, yes, verse 10, excuse me. As soon as he gets done saying from ancient times, things not yet done, he says, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish, I will accomplish. I'm a God of providence. I can bring things to pass. I can make stuff happen. What kind of stuff does he make happen? All my purpose. Counsel, purpose. And then he just gives a little illustration. He said, I can call a bird of prey. And it's just an illustration that when I need to spank my disobedient son, Israel, the nation of Israel, I just go, Assyria, come over here and deal with these people. Bring them to repentance. I can call a bird of prey to do anything I want. But notice the last part of verse 11. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. Whatever God prophesies, he makes it happen. I have purposed, and I will do it. So there are a lot of doctrines in here. The doctrine of God's foreknowledge, of course, because he can declare what's going to happen. But do you see that his foreknowledge rests upon his foreordination? What he has planned, he brings to pass. The Bible teaches us that everything that comes to pass was planned by God in a way that even makes the sinner and keeps the sinner guilty for what he did. So that's, that's my little excursion. This is helpful for the whole series, and that's why I took a little time to do this, because these five links demonstrate this kind of a God. A God who has planned <clears throat> from all eternity and who brings his plans to fruition. Now, when we come then to that foreknowledge, which we heard about last week, where God doesn't merely know what's going to happen, but he sets his peculiar, unique, distinguishing, redemptive affection upon certain individuals, a vast number of individuals, so vast the book of Revelation tells us that no man can number them. So don't think about divine election as God just picked out a little few people here and there. It's a vast company of people. But this foreknowledge that, that Jonathan told us about last week is not a pre-science the theological term is prescience, if you want to have fun with that word. Prescience. It sounds like precious. Prescience is the ability of God to tell everything that's going to happen based upon his knowledge of what everything is that's going to happen. Jonathan said, that is true. That is not what this text is about. This text is about the unique, intimate, distinguishing affection of God set upon a select number of Adam's fallen race, choosing them, electing them unto salvation. Now, just a word of encouragement and help here, because some of you may be struggling with this. It's been a while since we've taught this doctrine at Heritage, not because we're ashamed of it or embarrassed at all, but we've been preoccupied with other matters. And so some of you may struggle with this, and it's okay. It doesn't offend us if you're struggling. I'm, I'm telling you again, we all who presently embrace this have struggled with it at one time or another. Difficult struggles, honest struggles, good struggles. And here's how I want to help you. It feels like God's grace is discriminating. He, he discriminates. And that's a bad word in our culture. Well, the truth is God does discriminate. 
Not going to apologize for that. Not going to try to avoid that. Not going to try not to say it. God's grace is distinguishing and discriminating. Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. God's grace is discriminating. And I know that's hard to embrace, but it's biblical. And here's what helped me. Please remember this, that no one deserves salvation. So once again, let's, uh, <clears throat> let's look at the imaginary whiteboard behind me. I've drawn a great big circle, and I've filled it with um, hundreds and hundreds of dots, which represent millions and billions of people. The whole human race from Adam till the last person born before Jesus comes back. There it is. That's the totality of humanity. My question to you is, which one of these individuals deserve salvation? Deserve salvation. Which one of these individuals can hold God hostage and say, you owe me salvation? You're going to say, none of them. None of them deserve salvation. God isn't... If I said... How many of these people is he obligated to save? You would say, none of them. What if he let the whole shooting match go to hell? Would it be okay? Yeah, that would be okay. Why would that be okay? Because we're all sinners. We forfeited our standing with God. We did what God said, do not do or you'll die. And our inability now to do what he commands us to do is our own responsibility. We are responsible for our inability to come to him apart from divine grace, apart from the calling that we'll be looking at in two weeks. But we have to start with this understanding that God owes salvation to no one. And if he condemned everyone, it would just exonerate his justice for all eternity. So, so, If he comes along and says, but you know what? For reasons found within my own mind and heart, I'm not going to let the whole of humanity go to hell. I'm going to set my love and affection upon a vast number of people. Yes, they will be my elect. No, I am not setting that peculiar, unique affection upon every single individual with the intent of bringing them to salvation. But neither am I doing anything wrong with passing over others. Because what I do for one, I have no obligation to do for another. Now again, that sounds sort of harsh, doesn't it? Because we live in a rights-saturated culture and society. But you know, I was thinking about the Saul Westers, and I could name any number of other people who have done what they did. They went to Guatemala. And they chose a little girl by the name of Josie. Now, do you think it would have been possible for Joe, financially speaking, possible to maybe adopt one more? I'm sure it would have been possible, difficult, because it's very expensive. Just imagine Joe to be a multi-multi-millionaire. What would you think if there was a human event story in our paper that focused on the Saul Wester family and the bringing home of this precious little girl, and then you started seeing letters come to the editor saying, I, I don't like the Saul Westers because he's a very rich man. He should have adopted all of those orphans. I'm mad at him. I think Joe, in his humility, would say, hold on just a minute. I wasn't obligated to adopt anyone. It was out of the goodness of our hearts and love for children that we adopted our precious daughter. Nobody gets mad at that kind of discriminating grace. You know why? Because they know that there's no obligation. There's no obligation. And there is no obligation upon the part of God to save the whole of humanity. His grace can be distinguishing and discriminating. 
And the truth is, it is, but it's not wrong. It's good because God is good and God is wise. And who do we think we are to get up higher than God and sit in judgment of God and say, but God, according to my little system of ethics and my understanding of theology, you can't do that. And God says, who says? I say. You say? Who are you? Oh, I'm one of your creatures. What is your condition? Fallen. What is the depth and width of your understanding? Finite. Oh, let me get this straight. You're a creature. You're fallen. You're finite. Even though you're redeemed. And you are going to get up and sit in judgment on me as to what I can do. Now, I'm not trying to rub anything in anybody's nose, okay? This is, I don't say any of this out of anger. or I hope there's not a defensive spirit or roughness to my demeanor. I don't feel that at all. But dear people, I'm telling you, what is offensive is for human beings, fallen human beings, to hold God accountable to their system and their standard of what is right and wrong. God is a God of distinguishing, discriminating grace. And we who have been saved better be thankful for that or what we would have been a part of the whole shooting match going to hell. So that's, that's the big picture. Now, some of you, especially my fellow pastors, probably think PT's in big trouble. He spent all this time and now he's still got to deal with predestination. <clears throat> I don't think I'm in big trouble, but I'm trying to serve all, all of us for the six sermons to put a theological framework about this stuff. Last week, Jonathan said God set his love and affection upon a people, and that doctrine is called election. And this morning, I am just showing what the next thing Paul tells us about, and it's predestination. And what, what I hope you'll appreciate is once God determined uh, who he's going to save in our minds once, he did all this at once, by the way, That's, that'll blow your mind. God doesn't think sequentially like we do. We have to think sequentially because we're finite. And we're fallen. But let's think sequentially. Once God set his mind and heart upon a people, he, he decided what he was going to do for them. It's kind of like a, someone going to a hospital and, and let's, let's say adopting a child who has deformity and, and whose problem can be fixed with the proper amount of surgery and who would never have a chance in life without education and a, and a good start. And so someone says, I'm going to set my affection upon this little child. And you know what I'm going to do before it's all over? This, this little boy is going to be healed. He's going to be functional. He's going to know how to walk. And I'm going to give him a good education. Okay, you set your love and affection and then you determine what you're going to do for the person upon whom you set your love and affection. And God set his love and affection upon the elect. And he says, now I'm going to predestine them I'm going to predestine them to be conformed to the image of my son. Isn't that what the text says? Look at it. Come back to Romans 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, the interesting thing is, in this verse, this is the only word, this is the only link of the chain that the Holy Spirit, ruling Paul's mind, caused to add some more information. 20 words in the English. But when you get to verse 30, you just see, and those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. They're all short little statements. But here, he wants to tell us that there is a unique focus and goal for the predestination. So how am I going to treat predestination then, well, I think I should answer three questions real quickly. One would be, what is predestination generally? And the answer to that, I'm going to give you. But the second question is, what is the unique focus of the predestination in our text? And finally, what gracious and practical effects should this have upon our lives? So let me just go through those. And that's, that's all I'm going to do this morning.
That's the rest of the sermon. And I'm going to be very brief, especially on the first and the second. What is predestination? Generally speaking, I'm going to read from a, just a dictionary of theology. It's a good statement. It says the biblical teaching. It is the biblical teaching that God has planned beforehand, foreordained everything that is to happen in his world. He is not, however, the author of sin, nor are people merely machines. That's a helpful statement. He's ordained, he's foreordained everything that's going to happen. So I want to say to you that predestination is a broad subject in one sense because it includes everything. It's like the decrees of God. But the key concept is the word destined. How do you use the word destined? You say, well, you know, that, that just seems to... They were destined to come together. That was destined to happen. What do you mean by that? You mean it was just going to happen for sure. It's determined. It couldn't have gone any other way. What happens when you put the prefix pre before destined? Pre. Destined. See, this, this, is, this word is in the Bible. In fact, this word is in the New Testament at least five times. It's here. It's also in Ephesians 1, two times. And it's also in 1 Corinthians 2, 7. It's also in Acts 4, 28. Those are the five places for sure where this word is used and inspired by God the Holy Spirit. So what is predestination? Generally speaking, it is the complete control of God over everything according to his decreed will. We've already looked at a passage that teaches it, Isaiah 46. But I want you to see the exact usage of that word for that general purpose. So go, just go back one chapter to Acts chapter 4, I mean one book, to Acts 4, and notice verse 28. This is something that is confessed in a prayer. And it does imply that this, this doctrine was a great comfort to the apostles. They had been persecuted. They were set free. They went to a place of prayer. One of them was leading, even though it says they all prayed together. And this is what they said. That's interesting. They all prayed, and this is what they said. Did they all say the same thing at the exact same time? Possibly, but not likely. It just means that when we listen to the person who's leading in prayer and our hearts are joined to that, we're all praying the same thing. And he says in verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Now look out, put your seatbelt on. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Who did that? God did that. You mean that even included the wickedness of Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and Israel? Yep. But in a way that they're utterly and completely responsible for their own human actions. That's a mystery. The purpose of the sermon isn't to try to solve the mystery because you can't fully solve it. You have to bow down to it. But you see the usage of the word predestination. The Holy Spirit inspired the record of this prayer. The apostles found comfort in that. They said everything's going the way it's supposed to go. Our Savior was supposed to die on the cross. Herod was supposed to be involved in the crucifixion. And so was Pilate. And so were the wicked Jews. And so were the wicked Gentiles. And yet it unfolded in a way that provided redemption for sinners. There's a case. And then just very quickly in Ephesians chapter 1, and these are some ver verses that actually point specifically to salvation. I'm just showing that predestination isn't just about salvation, it's about history. But in Ephesians 1 verse 3, uh, Paul breaks out in a doxology. When he thinks about the sovereignty of God, it makes him worship, it doesn't make him mad. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us 
for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To the praise, wait a minute, notice, according to the purpose, to the purpose of his will, the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us. And then down in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's what I was trying to show you from Isaiah chapter 46. So the, the predestinating foreordination decrees of God cover everything, history and salvation. But what is the unique focus of predestination in our text? Those extra 20 words that I talked to you about, look at them again. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now there's a specific focus to this predestination here. It's not separate from salvation, but it's, it's not about history. It's not the doctrine of election per se. He predestined those whom he had chosen, whom he foreknew, to be conformed to the image of his son. And quickly notice, in order that, in order that, in order that. There's a purpose here. When you ever see in order that, you say, okay, there's a purpose here. He did this for this reason. He predestined the elect to be conformed to the image of Christ for an even greater purpose. I want to say this unless I forget it. I was going to say it later. Sometimes we think, well, the ultimate goal then of God's electing grace is uh, conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ because those whom he's chosen, he has predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And you know what? That is true in terms of our salvation. The ultimate goal of our salvation, personally speaking, God's not done with us until he makes us just like his son, morally perfect. And he's in the process of doing that now, which I'll reiterate in a moment. That is truly the ultimate goal with regard to salvation for us. But there's an ultimate goal. There's an ultimate, ultimate goal. And you know what the ultimate, ultimate goal is? It's the last part of verse 29. So that he, and this is the only he that doesn't refer to God in verse 29. So that in order that he, the son, the son, Jesus, might be the firstborn, that is the person of honor and supremacy, the most privileged, the most blessed of the family, so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, many meaning the multitude that no man can number. So the unique focus of predestination in our text is, first of all, conformity to the moral image of God's Son. That is to make us Christ-like, to make us holy, like we just read in Ephesians. And I'm not going to open this up with the kind of thoroughness that I would like to, but it, we're told in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 10 that God is in the process of restoring our broken image. We used to be image, we are the image of God, we're a broken image of God. We don't reflect well upon God. God's grace comes along and says, now I'm going to restore my image in you. But when we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, Paul tells us that this is a process which includes looking upon our Savior as we behold him. We are changed into the same image, the image of the Son, from degree to degree. That's what's happening right now if you're a true Christian. You are in the process of becoming like Christ, painfully slow, and we feel so unlike Christ, which probably is a sign that we're becoming like Christ, and that's good. But conformity to the image of God's Son begins at conversion, begins in the new birth, begins in the word that we're going to be coming to in a couple of weeks with effectual calling, the Holy Spirit coming into your life and drawing you to his Son, the Lord Jesus and from that second forward until glorification, you and I are in the process of becoming like God's Son. And it will be completed when Jesus comes back and we are glorified. But it isn't something that we can sit around and say, well, you know, I don't have to worry about my sins. I don't care. I mean, I know I'm not like Christ, but who, 
Who cares? What's the big deal? I'm going to be made like him when he comes back. That's good enough. Let's sin and enjoy life. No, no Christian could say that because the Holy Spirit is in them, causing them to want to be like Jesus. Who do you want to be more like than anyone else? Jesus. Who put that in your heart? The Holy Spirit. Why did he do that? Because you and I have been predestined in God's redemptive purposes to become like Jesus. It begins at conversion and it is consummated in glorification. So that's the unique focus of this predestinating work. That's what the text says. We're predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. And why? I've already told you. So that when God finishes all his redemptive work in the history of mankind, he'll have many brethren and all of them will say, I got here because of him. I am who I am because of him. He is the firstborn. He is my elder brother. He deserves all of the preeminence. The preeminence goes to him. That's why God saves people to glorify himself. That's the unique focus. And so it's a big deal to God that we should become obsessed with becoming like Jesus. Are you obsessed with that? Are you obsessed with that? How vigorously are you, not out of a legalistic motive, but out of a heartfelt motive, working at becoming like Christ? That's what you were predestined to experience in true conversion. Now, I want to conclude then with what are the practical and gracious effects of this doctrine upon our lives. Listen to our confession of faith. Um, There are some wonderful paragraphs. In fact, I was going to read from several, but I'm not going to. I'm only going to read from one now. I commend to you chapter 3 of the 1689 Confession. You'll you'll be hard-pressed to find a fuller statement about the practical effects of the doctrine of predestination than is found here and in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Paragraph 7 says this, The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may, from the certainty of their effectual calling, be assured of their eternal election so shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. <laughs> that, that, is, that paragraph, you need to read that ten times. Ten times. Ten times. It's biblical. I'm just going to comment on a couple of those practical effects. The doctrine of predestination needs to be handled carefully. But please, please don't forget this. It's in the Bible. We don't want to cut that word out of our Bibles. The Holy Spirit inspired it. And there are some very practical and comforting effects of this doctrine if properly embraced. And I'm just going to suggest these four. Here it is. One, it's going to humble us. Two, it's going to sober us. Three, it's going to comfort us. And four, it's going to motivate us. Humble Sober, comfort, motivate. Humble, sober, comfort, motivate. How does it humble us? That's pretty easy to answer, isn't it? (laughs) Because it just reminds us that I really didn't have anything to do with my salvation. God set his affection upon me, his saving affection upon me in eternity past. And predicted destined me to become like his son. And in order to make it happen, he sent his Holy Spirit into my life and effectually called me to himself and pronounced me righteous in his sight. And he's going to finish the whole deal when he comes back and he's going to make me perfectly like Jesus. What do I have to do with that? I mean, as far as taking credit, zero, nothing. It's very humbling and that's good. We all should feel like Mephibosheth. He was the son of Jonathan. And you remember what King David did for Mephibosheth. He asked, is there any left of the household of Jonathan? And the guy said, well, there's one, but he's crippled in his legs. And don't think that you particularly want to show an interest in him. He says, go get him. And when he comes, he says, Mephibosheth, 
for the sake of your father, my beloved friend, Jonathan. I want to give you all of the lands that belong to your grandfather, Saul. And I want you to eat at my table for the rest of your life. Dear brothers and sisters, you are Mephibosheth and I am Mephibosheth. We are the sons and the daughters of a rival prince. Although Jonathan was a good man, God's choice for the king was David. It's just so humbling. It's just so humbling. But it's also sobering because it makes us, if we're thinking, say, wait a minute, let me get this straight. You're saying, no, I'm not saying, Paul said it. Okay, Paul's saying that, that the elect have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And you're saying, no, I'm not saying, Paul said it in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18, that that is a process which begins at conversion and it involves us beholding Christ in the scriptures and by degree being changed into the same image. Whoa, that's pretty serious stuff. Wait a minute. I mean, I love it. That's what I want to be. But now you're sobering me. Yeah, I'm trying to sober you because... God wants us to say, how's the process going? How are you doing? Are you giving evidence of being one of those people who was predestined? Because the predestination in this particular context is unto conformity to the image of Christ. Is there some evidence that you are by degree, gradually, painfully, slowly, but nevertheless really becoming like Jesus Christ? If there isn't, you're not saved. I just have to say it. You're not saved. I'm not saved if there isn't. If there is, what's that mean? You've been called... Back to the humility part, I remember Sinclair Ferguson one time saying, looking at this and preaching on this uh, golden chain, he said, you know, if God said to me, why were you glorified? I would say, because I was justified. Why and how did you get justified? Because I was called. I was effectually called. How did you happen to be effectually called? God predestined me. Why were you glorified? Because I was justified. Why was you justified? Because I was called. Why were you called? Because I was predestined. One more question. Why were you foreknown? And Ferguson said, and we ought to say, I have no idea. I just know it wasn't for anything in me. I don't know. God found reasons in his own holy heart and mind to do it. I have no answer. It's all of grace. It's all I can say. So it's humbling, but it's sobering. It better be happening. And it's comforting because the comfort is the same comfort that Jonathan told us about last week. If we are in the process of being conformed to the image of Christ, it means we've been predestined and chosen. And if we've been chosen and predestined according to the purpose of God we're going to make it we're going to make it you're going to make it you're deeply loved God isn't going to quit loving you because you have fallen and because you failed he set his love and affection upon you from all eternity pick up the chain look at the links see if you can separate them if you can you're more powerful than God you're going to make it but your glorification is so certain that he's already put it in the past tense. Did you notice that? It's so certain that he can say it's a done deal. And it is a done deal. So it's comforting. Why was I made to hear his voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come, t'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew me in, else we had still refused to taste and rather starve than come. And finally, it's designed to motivate us. And this is the last text. Would you just indulge me one final time? Go to... Acts chapter 18, and it should motivate us for pressing on and being bold and being courageous and being untiring and being fearless in our evangelism. Paul uh, had experienced serious persecution in Corinth. 
And he was probably tempted to leave Corinth. He went to the house of a man by the name of Titius Justus, who was the next-door neighbor of Crispus, the ruler, who got saved, and his household got saved as well. It's one of those household conversions because the whole household got saved. And then it says this in verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. Why do you think God would tell Paul not to be afraid? Because he was afraid. (laughs) That's why. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you and harm you. For, look for those fours. Here's the reason. I have many in this city who are my people. I've got some people in here that haven't been saved yet, Paul. Not time to leave. Don't be afraid. I'll take care of you. Well, it's just the sovereignty of God and knowing that he has a plan that should encourage us to be bold in our evangelism and not succumb to fear. And by the way, this thought came to me even as I was reading the text, and I thought, I went through this little process in my mind while I was talking. Should I share that? And I said yes, and what I'm sharing is this. Last week when Pastor Jonathan reminded us of that great passage about uh, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are the called according to his purpose, we generally kind of think of that as, uh, you know, you had a flat tire today, or maybe maybe something as tragic as what Jim and Rayanne have experienced, and many of us other such tragedies. And we say to ourselves, this is going to work for good. But listen, as soon as Paul's done saying this is all going to work for good, he says, for, for, here's the reason. There's a for in the beginning of verse 29. Here's the reason. Because God has set his love and affection upon you and has predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good. That's especially the good. That's not the only good, but that's especially the good. The special good of all things working together is conformity to the moral image of Christ. So when you go through your difficult times, ask yourself this question, how can this make me more like my Savior? Because that's especially what Paul was talking about when he said all things work together for good for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed. So remember that and live with that encouragement as you go through your trials. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this passage. We know we've only scratched the surface of it. This one word, we thank you that you are a predestinating God. We thank you that you are in complete control of history and that you have a plan of salvation which will succeed. And we thank you personally that our salvation will never be lost because the fifth link was joined by you to the previous four. We will be glorified. We praise you. Lord, help us to live with the humility, the sobriety, the comfort, and the motivation that a right understanding of predestination should give us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.